Well, if you haven't yet, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, where we have been for a number of weeks, and we want to pick up this morning in verse 41. We are here at the end of this event that Luke has recorded by inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he has, we have seen Peter, Peter preach the word of God. We have seen the, the spirit given to the 120. We have seen Peter preach uh, boldly and clearly and we heard his great call that those who had heard him would repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Many had turned to Christ. In fact, we find out in this text, 3,000 had turned, and we pick up continuing in the results of Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all, as anyone might have need and daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. The title of this morning's message is What Makes a Church? What makes a church? Is it a building with a sign? Is it a pastor and people? Is it formal membership? Is it a clear mission statement? Is it where two or three gather together in my name? How do we know what a church is? What makes up a church? What is church about? It's one of those things, I think, that we tend not to think very deeply about because we've all been to church before. Many of us were raised in church. If there's anything that we know, it's what a church is and how a church ought to function. And yet I wonder if that's true. And I think maybe even more critically for our purposes, we could ask this question, what is it that makes a good church? What is it that that makes for a faithful church? Maybe there's a question that even brings it narrower and more into focus. Maybe more pressing. What is it that makes a faithful church member, a faithful saint who is a good churchman or a good churchwoman. Even in the use of those terms, you think I'm an antiquated fuddy-duddy. I know that. But in years 
recent, I have been captured sort of by this word churchman, which is an old word that's sort of been resurrected. What is it to be a churchman? Is that something even that God wants from your life? There are a lot of books that have been written on the issue of what it is that makes a good church. There are a number of good books that have been written on that topic. There are a number of really bad books on that topic as well. But what we find today in our text on this day of Pentecost, we see the birth of the church. We see the church in its infancy. And so this text is very, very instructive for us. It is really helpful and not super complex whatsoever. We can all master what a good church is like simply by looking into this good book, this perfect book, to derive our answers. Now, the church in its infancy did have a number of things, and we need to start here by acknowledging this, that would not be part of a good church in our own day. We know, for instance, that the office of prophet and apostle has passed from the church, that now we have pastor teachers who proclaim the inspired words of those apostles that are written in Scripture. We know that there is the priesthood of the saints, that is that every child of God is in fact a saint made righteous accounted righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, and therefore each one of us have a responsibility to the other to proclaim the truth of Scripture. We would see that in the early church there were these spontaneous words of knowledge where somebody would would be given direct revelation from heaven, God himself inspiring the message from that congregant. But we now have the word of God penned and written down again through men of God who are moved by the Spirit of God to inspire the words of God so that we have the inerrant truth of God that sits in your very lap. There's no need for the word of knowledge. We have the mind of Christ. We see that God has given us the faith, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 3. In the early church... We saw, even on the day of Pentecost, revelation being given in foreign languages that people were speaking that they had never studied. And all of that was for a number of reasons that we've already gone over at length, and I would just recommend that you go back and listen to those messages on tongues if you're interested and needing a refresher on that topic. But this was a temporary gift given to the church for a sign. We also see in the early church there were supernatural signs and wonders and miracles. These, the Bible says, were the signs of an apostle. They were given to verify, validate, and confirm the apostles, their ministry, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there are a lot of elements. We don't worship today in the temple. We are the temple. We don't go and, 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 and perhaps sell all that we own so that we might corporately share it. There's a different manifestation of that, but not in the way that we see perhaps in this text. Those miracles and signs and wonders that were practiced by Peter and Paul and the gang, you should not expect to see from, from Dave and Jim and Jeff and the gang. Different day, different age, God was doing something unique in that period. 
So it is important, as I mentioned all the way back in the introduction of this book, we've got to know, are the things that we're going to read and study here today descriptive about what was going on in the church at that time, or are they prescriptive? In other words, not only were they prescribed for the church in the first century, but they are, they are prescribed for the church in every century, including our own. Well, here's the way I'd answer that question. Are these things prescriptive or descriptive? I would say this, that in the book of Acts, as Luke is speaking and writing in this text, what he is revealing to us is descriptive of what, is ha what happened back then. However, much of what happened back then on the day of Pentecost becomes prescriptive for us as it is commanded to us by Jesus and the apostles in the epistles that they wrote. In other words, the early church was given to prayer. Should we be given to prayer? Well, yes, the answer is obvious. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. The disciples, Paul said, be devoted to prayer. Praying always in the Spirit, right? So we see that the very things going on here, many of them, have a very practical application for us, we should, we should understand that. You'd be challenged to find a text that's more relevant for our day. Did I say relevant or relevant? Well, whichever it is, I made up a word. Relevant, no, relevant, that's the word I was looking for. There we go. Sometimes it hits you up here, you go, did I take Benadryl this morning? That's right, I did. Beloved, what we have in this passage, you should treasure. You should study. You should make it a point in your life to see these things, to understand these things, and to apply these things in your life. The, we gain valuable insight into what makes a church, what a church is to be, how it looks, what its priorities and practices are. The very first thing we ought to note about this text, the very first thing that's apparent to us as we consider the church on the day of Pentecost was this, that they had a genuinely converted community. The church was comprised of genuinely converted people. Look at verse 41. Note it. He says, so then those who had received his word. That is the equivalent of those who had heard Peter preach, understood by the illumination of the Spirit of God what was preached, believed what Peter preached, and obeyed that gospel from the heart. They had received his word, and note this, they were baptized, because every believer is baptized. You say the thief on the cross was not baptized. I say to you, he never underwent water baptized, but was he baptized into Christ? He was baptized into Christ. And so were these people, and therefore they undergo the water of baptism. Of course they do, because they're Christians. And he says on that day there were added about 3,000 souls. What a day at the church. 
At this day, by the word of God, they were convinced about Jesus the Messiah. They were convinced about their sin. They were convinced that they needed Christ. Therefore, they were converted to Christ. The word of, the, of God was preached. They were, they were pierced. They repented of their sin. And they turned to Christ by faith and were baptized in his name. This was the purest church that had ever existed and has ever existed. This is a church that is marked by something around 3,120 genuine believers. There were no false believers in this church. There was only wheat. There were no tares. Nobody was deceived. Can you imagine? How did they sing on that morning? How rich was their love for one another? How excited were they about what Jesus had done for them? And how alive was this congregation in Christ? They were all, each and every one of them, all of them, healthy, pink, bouncy, newborns in Christ. They were the very offspring of God. There was not a stillborn among them. They were the real deal. 3,000 souls added, it says, to their number or added, and we should note this, verse 47, look down to it, added by God. The Lord, verse 47, was adding to their number daily. It wasn't because they read how to build a church in eight easy steps. It wasn't because they followed a series of prescribed things that would somehow make the world comfortable enough in the pew that they, they, they thought they were believers. Peter preached a true gospel. It is said in our day that we don't even know how to preach the gospel accurately enough for the non-elect to reject it. Peter preached a full gospel about the sufferings of Christ for sin, about the resurrection of Christ for justification, about the need for repentance and faith in Christ. He demanded they be baptized by the authority of Christ. And 3,000, how big is your church, Peter? I don't, we just started this morning. Well, how big is it? Uh, a little over 3,000. Oh, So what do we see in the life of this infant church? Well, first, we see that they were genuinely converted. Which is why, beloved, when you join this church or when you're baptized in this church, we interview you. It's not, it's not to nitpick your testimony. It's because we want to make sure you cannot be a member of, 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 of this church unless you're a member of Christ's church right? You must be saved. That's our goal is to see this kind of thing realized. Listen, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, we could not be more thrilled that you're here to hear the word of God. And we pray that you will listen and be converted and be baptized and even become a member here, but not before you have turned to Christ in repentance and faith. Well, they were genuinely converted. Secondly, they were a deeply committed community. They were a deeply committed community. You'll note that those who professed faith on the day of Pentecost still continued in the faith days after Pentecost. They did not walk a proverbial aisle. 
sign the proverbial card, and then go back to life as usual. Having added Jesus nicely to their life and somehow escaped by the hair of their, of their chinny-chin-chin, the, the, the fires of hell. No, these people were in, devoted, all in. They were radically changed. Their orientation of life became one that was centered in Jesus Christ and in the life of the church. That's the piece I don't want you to miss today. They were genuinely converted people who now find their life rooted and grounded and centered in Christ and in Christ's church. Look at verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to. Underline those words, continually devoting themselves. That, that phrase comes from proskartereo. It is a word that means to have strength, to remain steadfast, and to endure. In fact, it's got an intensification to it here where it, it speaks about adhering to something, holding fast to something, persisting in something obstinately, enduring. One of my favorite lexicons used this language. It is to cling to something tenaciously. That's the idea of this word, this idea that they were continually devoting themselves. They were, they were clinging to one another tenaciously. They were attached. There was a constancy of focus, a unity of mind. There was an, a corporate intensity and intentionality about being together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they persevered in it. When they were busy, when they were tired, not month by month, but day by day, King James says they, continue, they continued steadfastly. And that brings out the idea of the steadfastness of their commitment. ESV says they devoted themselves. That brings out the aspect that they actually took themselves to task and said, you know what, Charlie? You're a, you're, you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has called you out of one people. That is the world. But he has called you into another people. That is the church. He has taken you out of the kingdom of darkness, placed you into the kingdom of light. These are your people. Nasby states it completely. They were continually devoting themselves. They were not giving God the leftovers, but the best and the highest and the most. Church was not an event they attended, but relationships to which they were committed to Christ first and to one another in Christ. 
The church was not someplace they went on Sunday mornings, but something they were seven days a week. They were all in. They were sold out. It dominated where they were physically, and it dominated their mind, and it owned their heart. They were given to the life of the church. And you'll see this throughout the entire book of Acts. Christ's interests are the church's interests. Christ's priorities are the priorities of his people. The church was the priority of these believers' lives because Jesus was the priority of these people's lives. And if there's anything that's beloved and precious on planet Earth to Jesus, beloved, is the church. Jesus is a very focused man. He loves his people. You are the delight of the Lord Jesus Christ. This people and all of his people over the planet and in heaven, all of them are his flock, his body, his bride, his household, his family, his brothers, and his sisters. We think too little of the church. We don't understand what we're doing when we come here. We, 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 we tend to think I'm going to church. We've got to lose that concept. What church do you attend? That is as shallow as a question gets, my friend. And it betrays the American mindset when it comes to the church. What do you mean, what church do I attend? Are you talking about the address of the physical church that I go to where I assemble with, I don't, I don't really know their names, but I mean, you know, it's the place where I go and I sit and I sing and I put money in the plate. That has very little to do with the church, frankly. These people had no church building. They didn't pass a plate, I'll tell you that. They just sold land and their possessions if somebody had need because the need of my brother in Christ is at least as great as my need, if not greater. It is the church for which Christ shed his blood. It is the church that he is in the process of building. It is the church, his people, to whom he is eternally committed forever and ever. It is the church upon whom he bestowed gifts. It is the church among whom he dwells and in whom he delights. It is the church for whom he will come again. It is the church with which Christ longs to spend all the days of eternity forever and ever and ever with his people.
It is no exaggeration in the least to say that the church is the very epicenter and focus of the whole of human history. That everything Jesus is doing in the world, he is doing in the church and through the church and for the church that he might be glorified and with his people. You cannot overvalue her importance and you cannot overestimate the centrality of the church in everything that God is doing in the world. And so here we are on Pentecost, the day of the birth of the church, 3,000 were born again in that day and these converted Jewish believers, to them the church was a priceless treasure. I could not help think, th think this morning, musing on these things, as I peered out the window, I live right in downtown Colfax, and here was a group of women walking along together with their little squeezer tong deals that pick up trash. They were picking up trash in the town of Colfax. Bless them for it. They had a fellowship of sorts, a partnership in something they were very philanthropically committed to one another and they shared a value, which was what? A clean city. And that's noble, I guess, in some microscopic way. Beloved, their fellowship in trash is nothing compared to what we have. I felt bad for them. What are you doing this morning, Jeannie? I don't know. Well, let's pick up trash. Okay. Whoa, whoa, this is so, so much bigger than we take it to be. And may the Lord prove me wrong. I hope they were just believers picking up trash before church and then uh, praise God for that, okay? <laughs> I'm not being critical of ladies who walk or people who pick up trash. I'm trying to help you see in the pages of Scripture what it is, beloved, that we have been given and what it is that you and I are called to give our lives for just as our Savior gave his life for. There was for these people a new family, a new community, a new identity, a new purpose, Together with the people of God, the church, these redeemed relationships, beloved, with others in Christ is where these people wanted to be. What are you doing tonight, Tony? I'm going back to be with the people of God. We did that last night, I know. But that's where I want to be. What are you doing tonight, Carla? I'm giving up, taking up trash. I don't have time for that anymore. <laughs> I've got to be among the people of God. Yeah, but you were at the people of God last Sunday. Yes, I was, and Wednesday too, and Thursday morning with a Bible study with a friend, and Friday I saw somebody for coffee. We prayed together. It is my life. Beloved, we do not think highly enough of the church. This is in such contrast to our day the church is, 
is barely so much as a speed bump in people's week. Somebody said to me this week, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Just one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. See, these were people who began to catch the vision and understand why Jesus died and what salvation means. Beloved, our culture, our church culture, is enthusiastic about everything else. We find time to invest in all kinds of things. You think through your life, is the church a priority for the people that you know? Is that what they talk about? Is that what they're enthusiastic about? Is it the truth, the King of Kings, the Great Commission, the fellowship to which we've been called? Is that what is gurgling in their heart and just they can't restrain it? I tell you, that's the way it was for these folks. They were devoted, they were committed, they loved the church, beloved, they were vested in the church, they were into it. And they didn't like it, they relished it. And oh, that we would catch this vision and a greater passion for the church. That's all by way of introduction. Now, our text gives us six critical commitments of faithful churches. I might change that, that our text gives us six critical commitments of faithful Christians. The Bible says more about the church than is here, but what is here is non-negotiable. And there may be more than six commitments of faithful churches, but there are not less And when we talk about faithful churches, of course, we are speaking about the faithful individuals who comprise those local assemblies. So we could ask the question, how are we doing at these things? There's a better question that you can ask this evening as you stare into the mirror at home. How am I doing in these commitments? What does it take to make a faithful church? Well, first, this. It takes a steadfast devotion to Scripture. A steadfast devotion to Scripture. This is the first thing that Luke by the Spirit lists as characteristic of the early church was that they were eagerly devoted to the teaching of Scripture. Verse 42, and they were continually devoting themselves, tenaciously so, to the apostles' teaching. Why did the church gather? Well, one reason was for this, so that they might sit under the preaching of God's word. They wanted the exposition of the word of truth. They were were committed to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. They were devoted to the content of the truth of the word of God. That's what the apostles' teaching is. That's code word for the very book that you hold in your lap. This church had the heart of John Wesley who said, oh, give me that book at any price, 
Give me the book of God. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri. That is to say in Latin, which I don't know, a man of one book. Let me be a man of one book. This is amazing to me. They wanted the truth of God and they wanted it out of the mouth of the apostles and they wanted it every day. They were devoted. Think again, in our modern church context, they were devoted, tenaciously clinging to. They were devoted to doctrine. They were drawn to the preaching of the word of God. And we saw this, didn't we, with Peter, this whole passage. Peter says, what do I do on the day of Pentecost? He stood up, but he knew what to do. What did he do? He opened the book. And he taught from the book of Joel, and he taught from a couple of the Psalms, and he preached hard truth with authority and with boldness. He let no one disregard him, and he confronted the crowd with their sin. He told them, you crucified your Messiah. And he called them to repentance and faith, and they believed. This same group came back for a double dose. They came back the next day. What? There was none of this, don't you preach at me mentality. Preaching of the word had saved them. If there was anything they were grateful for was the word of God through the mouth of God's servant. They loved the truth. And preaching would become their lifeblood. They had given up whatever philosophy they had studied in high school. They had given up whatever the local chatter was down at the hairdresser. They didn't care about that stuff anymore. That stuff was fruitless. It was cotton candy in the mouth. They needed truth. And there was no shying away from doctrine, calling it divisive or too difficult for the modern ear. They heard truth and they wanted more of it. They had none of that sort of hope he keeps us to 15 minutes mentality or I'm not coming back to this place. When Peter finished after a couple of hours, the people all said, that's all? And you think I'm joking about a couple of hours. When Ananias comes in and dies for his lying, his wife comes in three hours later and they take her out too. Don't even wear a watch to church. You don't need it. It's nothing but a distraction. You're going to have a watch in heaven? These people wanted preaching, not programs. These people, they wanted doctrinal meat. They were dissatisfied with dainty finger sandwiches. They, they, they could no longer live by bread alone. They needed every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They had received, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, a love of the truth so as to be saved. And their cry, like Wesley's, was, give me that book. 
To them, the word became sweeter than honey. It became more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold. And this, beloved, is one of the surest evidences that you have been born again, that you long for the pure milk of the word of God like a newborn. You shake if you don't get it. Your lips quiver. You ever seen little babies when they're hungry? That's the picture that Peter paints He wants you to long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. So preaching and teaching of the word of God is absolutely foundational to the church of Jesus Christ. Preaching of the word means conviction of sin. It means the conversion of sinners. It means conformity to Christ. Everything, again, that God is doing in his church, he is doing by the word of God, through the spirit of God. It is the spirit of God who uses the word of God to convert and conform the people of God into the likeness of God And therefore, we have a really simple philosophy of ministry. Preach the word and let the Spirit do his work in his people. I'm occasionally asked as as people move or whatever, what, what should I look for in a church? I always, always, without exception, begin with this. Good coffee. No. No, I begin with this. You find a church that preaches accurately the whole counsel of the word of God. Listen, whatever else, whatever else a church offers, if the word of God is not there, that church is utterly rudderless and it will in time continue to decline until it becomes no church of Christ whatsoever. The word of God Beloved is living and it is active. It is a dynamic. God speaks and the universe comes into being. God speaks and believers are called to repentance and faith. And they are resurrected from the dead. The church is saved and the church is sanctified, and sinners are instructed in wisdom and convicted of sin and converted to Christ and conformed to his image. The word is our bread, it is our meat, it is our milk, it is our very sustaining of life. Without it, it's all form and fiction. And one of the themes of the book of Acts is the progress of, of God's plan of redemption. How, 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 the, how it goes from Christ on the cross and resurrected and ascended to now the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles in seeing the things realized that Jesus would in fact uh, tell us should be realized. And what's amazing is you see all of this being forwarded how. How, how is all of this happening? Well, it's all happening through the preaching of the word. Look at Acts chapter 6. Get your fingers moving. It'll, it'll, it'll get your heart pumping a little bit. Acts, another benefit to not having a cell phone but having your paper Bible in your lap. It's better exercise. You will consume calories. Chapter 6, verse 7. Notice this. We've got to do this quickly. And the word of God kept on spreading. Why does he put it that way? Why don't you say a bunch of people came to Jesus? They believed. They believed. 
Well, because Luke wants us to understand something. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in in Jerusalem. Look at chapter 12. Verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Now that doesn't even make sense if you just take it for what it says. What does that mean? If, 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 <laughs> if you walked in, dads, to dinner tonight and announced at your table, the word of your father is growing and continues to be multiplied, they would look at you like, what in the world are you talking about? You see, the word of God spreading and growing is so associated with the reality of people coming to Christ that Luke just here uses that as a statement of fact. The word of God was growing. That doesn't mean any more words were added to the pages of your Bible. What it means is that the word of God is saving people. The spirit of God is working by his word to redeem the people of God. Praise God for this. Chapter 3 and verse 5, or 13 and verse 5 When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Look down at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being astonished at the teaching of the word. Look at verse 44. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled. Why? To hear the word of the Lord. Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, that is the word of the Lord, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many has been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. You tired? I'll turn you to chapter 19 and we'll quit, okay? Chapter 19 and verse 10. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Do you see what's being stated here about the truth of the word of God? Do you see why the church has got to hold up the word of God as is of first importance? Mark Dever writes, quote, There is life-giving power in God's word. The word is God's way of giving life to dead sinners and to dead churches. He doesn't have another way. I'm just going to let that sink for a minute. He doesn't have another way. You'd like to see all these seats filled, wouldn't you? So would I. Why? So we can feel good that our church is big so that we might be able to offer more programs? No, because we want to see the word of God advance in such a way that, that more people are here to worship the word of God or worship God by, by hearing the word preached. Dever says he doesn't have another way. If we want to work for a renewed life and health and holiness in our churches, then we must work for it according to God's revealed mode of operation. Otherwise, we risk running in vain. 
We could put on all kind of dog and pony shows to get this church filled up with people, but trust me, it becomes less of a church the, 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 when, when that sort of thing goes on. We're not into numbers for numbers' sake. Beloved, these brothers and sisters have been brought forth by the word of truth and the exercise of God's will, and they could not get enough of it. They were devoted to it, and where the word was taught, that's where you would find them, and that's good. Where the word is taught, that's where you should find us, and that's good. There's a second commitment of a faithful church or a faithful church member, and that is to fellowship. And I really was going to hustle through this. You can ask the elders. I confessed to them on Friday. I said, man, I, I just started pouring over verses about the fellowship of the church. And I, frankly, I lost a day as far as my sermon was concerned. I, I was just absorbed in, the, in this great reality. And I said, you know, I talked, this is on Friday at our elders meeting. I talked about fellowship in Romans in the latter part of Romans. I talked at length about fellowship in Ephesians. I talked about it at length in the book of Philippians. I said, I think I need to just, I need to just move through this. And they said, don't you dare. Praise God, you have shepherds who wants you to understand this critical commitment of any faithful Christian. It is to fellowship. They were continually devoting themselves to the fellowship. Koinonia, you know the word. It's used 19 times and only here in all of Luke's writing, but it is this wonderful, rich word that has all kinds of depth of meaning and significance most of us, most of the church in America, most of the Western church tends to associate fellowship with simply gathering together around food, which is part of it. You can be encouraged by that, okay? We're going to see that. Look down at verse, again, uh, 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 46. They were breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Nice. We'll get there. But it is much bigger than coffee and donuts, and you need to understand that. The noun fellowship carries the idea of association or of communion. It has the idea of a, of a close and committed relationship with someone or something. The verbal form appears another eight times, and it means to share or to participate or to contribute. If you were going to write down a, a one-word equivalent with fellowship, it would be participation. It's a partnership. It is a sharing in common. And it speaks of our corporate oneness in Christ. It speaks of our unity of heart and mind. It speaks of our singleness of purpose it speaks of our resolve to pursue Christ and the Christian life together. And it all begins with a common life of faith in Christ. So this is much, much more than an isolated time of gathering together for refreshments. Biblically, and I won't give you all the references for time's sake, but I have them if you'd like them. We have fellowship with the Father. We have 
been called by God into fellowship with his son. We have fellowship with the spirit. And therefore we have fellowship with the triune God. Jesus prayed that we would be one. We have been called into that oneness, that fellowship with God himself through faith in Christ. And our fellowship, beloved, is visible to the church and it is visible to the world. We are the body of Christ and God God is a God who is a relational God. He is a God who lives perfectly in unity, all the members of the Godhead, in perfect fellowship. And therefore it makes sense, doesn't it, that the body of Christ would reflect that very unity in our own midst. By this the world will know that you're my disciples. What is it? That you love one another. And we think love again and we think service and sacrifice and ministry to one another. We think of affection for one another. I'll continue. The Bible says because we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship also, 1 John 3, or 1, 3, with one another. We share in a mutual fellowship or participation in the gospel. We share in a participation in the blood and body of Christ. We share in fellowship in meeting the financial needs of the believers. We share in fellowship with Christ and his sufferings. It is in Christ and through the word that we have become, get this, I love this, partakers of the divine nature. That word partakers is koinonia. We have fellowship with the divine nature. God is reflecting his image in and through us as he conforms us to the image of Christ. We do not have fellowship, same word, with unbelievers any more than light has with darkness or Christ with the devil. We've been made to drink, you heard it read earlier, of one spirit. And we have been baptized, brought into unity with the body of Christ. And this is why, beloved, this is why the Bible knows nothing, knows nothing of an unchurched Christian. And this problem has grown bigger than it's ever been. All the COVID-19 nonsense, all the other things that, that have impacted our culture and continued to fracture us leaves people isolated and there are truckloads of professing believers who still have not returned to church. There is nothing in the Bible about an unchurched Christian, an unattached Christian, a, 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 a lone ranger believer. Listen, you are part of the body of Christ, and if you are not functioning in it, you're nothing more than a severed limb. You're useless. At best, you are utterly ineffective, and at worst, you're dead and deceived and decaying. This is why the Apostle John, for instance, can say this, that, that, that if you have no love for your brother in Christ, if the church is not a pleasure and a treasure and a delight to your heart, then your heart is not characterized by the heart of Christ. And you have every reason to doubt whether you even know Jesus. Joseph Hellman says, listen, salvation is a community-creating event. 
And I wonder if you or I, I know I did not think of my salvation as a community creating event. And what Hellerman is getting at is the idea that you were redeemed and called into committed relationships with God's people in the church. You are committed in relationship to Christ and then you are committed to Christ's people. And these believers were devoted to one another. Again, consider the church in our day. Think for a second about that radically individualistic culture in which each and every one of us lives. We prize those people who can stand alone, who can prevail against the masses, who, who need nobody, and, 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 and more or less can, 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 can just stand by themselves. And we have brought that right into the church. Let me ask you, Think for a second the way the gospel came to you. When the gospel came to you, when it entered into your ear, did you hear something like this? You need to make Jesus your own personal savior. You say, no. They said, I need to make Jesus my own personal Lord and Savior. Good. That's a better gospel presentation. But, but here's, here's the thing. You need, to, you, need to, you need to take Jesus and you need to uh, accept him into your heart. He needs to become your personal Lord and Savior. Do you hear what the common thread in all of that is? It's so American. This is all about you. This is about your salvation, your benefit in heaven. This is about you accepting Jesus on your terms. This is about your own personal salvation. This is about you and God. What does it have to do with church anyway? Here's Hellerman again. So good. We have been, quote, socialized into an American Christian paradigm that understands salvation to have everything to do with how the individual relates to God and nothing to do with how we relate to one another. This gospel addresses solely the issue of one's personal relationship with God. To become a Christian is to enter into a relationship with a new father with little or no emphasis on our relationship with our new set of brothers and sisters. In our typical gospel presentations, we introduce, God's, we introduce God's family only as a sort of utilitarian afterthought. You know, it's been a month or two since you, you've been saved, and have you, you really ought to think maybe about finding a good church. And we don't even define for people what a good church is. We just say, just go find one. Right. That's like looking at your infant and saying, hey, you just need to find good sustenance. Just to open the cupboards and go for it. Here's what's important, my friends, to understand, and it is this, that when you and I were saved, it was not only that we might enjoy a, a personal relationship with God, a phrase, by the way, that is found nowhere in Scripture. But it was not only that you might know Christ personally. The emphasis of the Bible, both Old Testament and New, is not you singular, but y'all plural. 
the emphasis of the Bible is really a corporate. We are a people who have been purchased for God's own possession. And it will do all of us good to begin thinking more in those terms than in individual terminology. Get this, of the 23 times that Savior, the word Savior, is used in conjunction with some person or some group of people who are being saved, only one time of those 23 times does it refer to an individual. And that is when Mary says, calls, calls her, 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 her infant child, my Lord. When Paul uses the personal pronoun, my, mine, or ours, I know, this is academic, hang in there. My, mine, or ours, with the word Lord, he chose the plural, get this, 53 times. He is our Lord, and he chose the singular once. Now, I am not denying, please hear this, I am not denying the necessity and the preciousness of a very personal, individual salvation. I am not diminishing it in any way, that glorious reality of a very living and intimate relationship with Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, you have that, you should know that, you should cultivate that, that's beautiful. What I am saying is that there should be something more. There should be a step beyond thinking about me. We need to be much more about us. We need to think much more about the corporate dimension of all of this. Uh, a lot of times I think we go to church and we don't think much about what is the end game here? Where are we all headed? What is this all about? What is God doing in his church? Beloved, listen, there is an end goal Stanley Grantz captures it well. He says this, according to the Bible, God's ultimate desire is to create from all nations a reconciled people living within a renewed creation and enjoying the presence of the triune God. That's where this is all headed. It is the triune God in a renewed creation and it is us before him in eternal gratitude for what he did for us. So here are your key understandings regarding fellowship and then we'll wrap. Number one, Christian fellowship only exists because God the Father has through the life, death, and resurrection of his son given us a shared spiritual life. There are the key words. We have a shared spiritual life by the Holy Spirit and in the Holy Spirit. We have a shared spiritual life and because we have been brought into this common union through faith in Christ with the triune God, we then have a common bond and union with one another. We have a shared spiritual life. We have fellowship with God and therefore with one another. And thirdly this, that this fellowship is a unique and priceless treasure. It is rooted in belonging to Christ, being indwelt by the Spirit, and then a mutual sharing with one another, the fullness of Christian experience. 
That is to say that we live and walk this path together. And that, that makes you think about the people in this room differently. It really does. God has uniquely, providentially placed you here among us to walk the road together toward Christ's likeness. If you want a definition, here's your definition. Fellowship is a participation in the life of God, and it is a participation in the works of God. You have the life of God through faith in the Holy Spirit, or in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and therefore that common faith then, that common life of God is worked out through the one another's that is worked out in the church as the works of God. Which is why when you read in verse 44 that they were together, that they had all things in common, that they got rid of their material stuff and shared the money, that, that they devoted themselves to worship in the temple, that they were breaking bread from house to house. They just opened their doors and they shared their meals together. And it wasn't a burden. It was just gladness and sincerity of heart. You, man, do I want that. And man, have I known it, but I want more of it. Beloved, there's an argument, if there ever was one, for the reality and power of the life that is given to Christ's people. This very visible, unified, committed group of people sacrificing their selves and their stuff. And when it got hard, they stayed because they were committed to each other and living out the gospel, which includes forgiveness for sins and reconciliation and repentance and mercy and compassion and all of those things. Not bouncing from church to church because somebody offended me, somebody bothered me, the pastor said something stupid. That isn't the point. Unity. Be diligent, beloved. Why does he have to command us this? Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now there's a commitment and a, a commandment to give yourself to. I said earlier, We've got to get away from that question. What church do you attend? What church do you go to? The church is not a place you go. It is people to whom you're committed. And the church is not a service I attend. It is a service I render. And church is not about nine to noon. It's about the devotion of your life's energy in the power of God to the people of God. And we come here not to, I made this up, not, not to be served, but to serve and to give our life. I didn't make that up, right? You, you got the joke. Yeah. We are like our Savior. And so we come not to get from the church, though we do get. We come to give our time, our talent, our treasure, all of it to Christ and all of it for his people. I don't even really factor into the equation. And fortunately, when everybody else is thinking that way, I, I guess I do factor into the equation. 
These people gathered together constantly and they were devoted together. They shared their money. They shared their stuff. They worshiped together. They were hospitable with one another. They ate together. They were marked by gladness and sincerity of heart. What a picture. No wonder, verse 47, it says they had favor with all the people. People looked on that and went, man, what a life. How do I get in with that group? Lord willing, we will come back to these verses next week, but precious flock of God, precious people, my friends, beloved, can you give me one more minute? Hear this out. This is why we encourage you week by week to be here. Together as one. This is why we preach the word of God as we do. This is why we implore you, we beg you to be here at 9 o'clock for the preaching of the word of God to which we are committed tenaciously and at 10.30 for the preaching of the word of God which we are committed to tenaciously and the weekly Bible studies to which we are committed to studying the word of God to which we are committed to tenaciously because we love the truth of the word of God. Now that's obvious in the text, isn't it? And I want you also to see that this is why we encourage you to come and, and, and to contribute to our fellowship meals every first Sunday of the month. It's why we encourage you to linger long with one another around here after church. We don't push you out. If you stayed long, you know that. We'll stay till you stay. You got to go? Okay. Man, bummer. Okay. And we'll go. With gladness of heart. But this is why sometimes I think people think, well, well, of course you guys have fellowship meal. It's just a chance for you to eat free food. No. <laughs> it's really not the thrust of it. Well, why do you talk about contributing then? Why do I have to contribute? Well, listen, you don't have to contribute. But freely you have received, and there ought to be something in your heart that says, man, do I want to contribute to this? I'm bringing some food. Not because I have to, but because you, you can't stop me. Beloved, this is why we call you to faithfully commit to a home fellowship group for the next year. The example of the early church was that the church was rich in love and affection and humble sacrificial service and selfless generosity and a deep, deep concern for one another. And I know in even saying that, some people fearfully say, look, that just sounds too exposed and too entangled and too painful and too much like sitting on a Southwest flight in coach. Listen, I do like when you sit tight. I really like it. But we try to leave plenty of leg room. Listen, my friends. <laughs> Let me ask you this, 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 this question. 
Have I preached these things this morning to manipulate you into following our agenda? We're the pastors of this church. We have an agenda. This is the way we like it. And we're going to lay this load on your shoulders and you better jump. Is that what I've preached this morning? Is that why we're talking as we are even now face to face? Or are the priorities of which we've been talking Christ's priorities for his people? Beloved, I only declare to you what is in the text. That is my prayer every week. It should be your prayer for me because apart from the text, i got nothing to offer. But this text, this morning, I have prayed that your eyes would be open and that your heart would be moved by God's design for your life so that this church might be what Christ has called this church to be, that we might image him still more accurately. Beloved, so that you personally would know the joy and the awe and the wonder of oneness in Christ that exists among the people of God. This is why we present a simple package here, and it is not programmatic. It is a package that comes right from the head. And therefore, we as the body and as the shepherds of this congregation, the under-shepherds, under the authority of the chief shepherd, call you to these things unapologetically because they're Jesus' priorities, not ours. The Lord is building his church. What are you building? He is devoted to his church Continually and tenaciously, what are you devoted to? Are you as devoted to his people as he is? Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our Father, your word is so rich and so full and we're grateful for the food which you've given to us this morning. Oh Lord, open our eyes and help us to understand. Give us greater insight into Christ. Give us greater insight into our salvation. Give us greater insight into the kingdom of God and to your church and all that you are doing in this world. Lord, help us that we might never succumb to a cultural Christianity which just... which truncates and minimizes and attaches the church to our lives as if we were playing pin the tail on the donkey. Lord, what a shallow view of your purposes in this life. Forgive us for not treasuring one another as we ought. Forgive us for the neglect of our gathering so that we might pursue our pleasures and our habits and our hobbies. Forgive us, Lord, for that selfish line of thinking which is glad to have entrance into the kingdom of heaven but cares not whether others come. Lord, these things are sin and we confess that we fall to them time and again. And Oh, Lord, we need your help. Help us to catch this vision. And we pray that you would be pleased and glorified 
in your church, assembled here in this local assembly. And these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Entitled, Rise Up, O Men of God. In our day, I think it's in our hymnal, is Rise Up, O People of God, and perhaps that's better. Rise up, O men of God. Be done with lesser things. Give heart and soul, mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. My friends, go from here determined to count as precious that for which Christ shed his precious blood and give your life to the church. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.